This is Ramdas here and now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. Back with another episode, and uh, this one hails back to 1974, May 18th. It's fun for me to look at these uh, dates and see when Ramdas has done these talks and think about where was I then? And in fact, I was living in uh, Montreal, where I'm from. I was living outside in the countryside, about to have a child, my first child, with my wife at the time. And Ramdas was about to go to uh, Naropa. The Naropa session started, I think, just a few weeks after this talk. Pretty interesting little historical anecdotes. Uh, before I get into anything here, though, and tell you about what this talk is about, uh, I want to remind everybody uh, to... Uh, we have a couple of uh, new programs that have come out on ramdas.org. One in particular I think that you'll all uh, really enjoy and can take great advantage of, it's from a uh, retreat that we did in Maui oh, early last year, actually. And that was with Sharon Salzberg and Ram Das. And I moderated a session with them around compassion, truth, and adversity. And actually, it was the actual retreat was called Compassion and Adversity, the adversity part Sharon uh, wanted to uh, bring to the table. And then as they got into it, Ramdas talked a lot about truth and the necessity of truth in dealing with uh, adversity and how that combines also uh, with being able to be a compassionate human being. It's a terrific talk, uh, or it's not a talk, it's a conversation, uh, workshop-ish kind of conversation that... Uh, had some great highlights in it and some wonderful information that'll help help everybody day to day because uh, it's all very very plain spoken and interestingly enough Ramdas talk in talking about truth he talks about um, something that he mentions quite a bit which is Maharaji telling him love everyone and tell the truth and how in that moment it was an impossible thing and he talks about it in this talk as well uh, the other thing is Ramdas did a uh, a great little webcast a couple of weeks ago with Lama Suryadas, and uh, the exchange between the two of them is precious. So you can find both of these things. Just go to ramdas.org, and I think it's uh, pretty easy to navigate the site. We've really been working on this site over the years, and... It's really getting to a, a, a great place, which is we want to be able to make all of this material available to everyone in, uh, in the most efficacious way. How about that? Uh, so, so this talk, uh, it it's didn't have a title, and um, I'm going to call this part of the talk The Confusion in the Paradox. So uh, what, what the paradox is here, if you're ready for the confusion of the paradox, and that is that you are in an incarnation that's totally dedicated to the preservation of its own separateness uh, 
and you are awakening to the realization that the entire domain of separateness is but another illusion. And so you find yourself marching in a 180-degree opposite direction to everything you learned, you've learned in your life, everything your body is telling you, and all of the deepest structures of ego. And uh, the reason, he says, there's a lot of confusion these days is that we are not comfortable with paradox. We are still trying to be reasonable about it all, make it all logical. And the intellect, of course, we know is an exquisite instrument, um, but a lousy master. So, uh, so this is really a, um, really a great part of what uh, Ramdas goes through in this talk, is self-revealing. And again, it's that thing that we really loved uh, when we first heard Ramdas talk, which uh, took a lot of us, uh, took the initiative at that point to go to India, was that self-honesty. And he tells some really, um, really funny stories about him going through a period of like getting up and talking in front of people and not being the least bit connected uh, with uh, being, quote-unquote, uh, a spiritual person, a Baba Ramdas. You know, and somebody comes up to him at the end and says, wow, you've really changed my life. This has been fantastic. And he goes, oh, really? Well, that's your problem. <laughs> and just dealing with, oh, my God, that he talks about how that, that doesn't seem to be a very compassionate response, but... Uh, an honest one, in, you know, in in that moment, and that has been his a, a fierce um, commitment for him, and which is why many of us really appreciate. We all appreciate him in that way. Um, and so, what this is really, uh, this talk is really, and, and talks a lot about the Gita, which is another precursor to where he was going a couple of weeks later to do this course on the Bhagavad Gita at Naropa at uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's uh, the first summer that Naropa was open. The real battle is with our own inner feelings and beliefs about how it ought to be. Clinging to spiritual methods is no more or less than a junkie clinging to his connection. I love that. That should be a good tweet. I was just trying to figure out if it's the right character length. Uh, so a lot about how we can really uh, appreciate the the uh, the confusion uh, that takes place as we get onto the spiritual path and as we navigate the spiritual path and think things ought to be a certain way. And I think that is a fall down that we have all had and all have all the time. Um, and so, uh, great talk, and we're going to go right into it here. And again, thanks everybody for all the support that we are getting at Ramdas.org. Uh, we have some fantastic new projects coming up this year. There's going to be a great book I think I've talked about before called Love Everyone that's going to come out this fall through Harper, which is all of our stories after meeting Ramdas. Many, most of us got to India that way getting to Maharaji, how that happened and what happened there. And it's, uh, it's an exciting project. Uh, we have film projects, uh, other books, uh, which we will keep you informed all the way. 
uh, but it really this is an effort uh, that is not just us and, and our volunteers and staff. It's it's really the community that's been created around Ramdas.org, and please continue to uh, support in any which way you can through donations. You can go to the Amazon portal on uh, Ramdas uh, here and now through the podcast, or go to MindPod Network, where Ramdas's podcasts are also located with all of our other uh, teacher friends. And uh, here he is, Ramdas. Here and now, the confusion in the paradox. Usually a lecture is about, uh, the first half of it is straight seduction. (laughs) Because there is always somebody sitting in the front row saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Sitting, uh, deciding whether or not he or she will listen or let it in. And that's okay, that's part of the work. To be with who you're with in the way you have to be with them. But there is some quality about a gathering such as this which is more like a big living room at home. Well, we've already done that. I mean, if you haven't judged that it's acceptable, forget it at this point. (laughs) So at this point, all we're doing is hanging out. We finished the heavy work. And more of us are aware than ever now that really there's not much to do. And it is in the total irrelevancy of this gathering. (laughs) Because always we used to have to make it important. I have a serious message to convey. The third Chinese patriarch, with whom I've been hanging out for about a year, he says, I mean, you don't have to believe me, but you can believe him. It sounds legitimate if it's the third Chinese patriarch. He says, do not remain in the dualistic state. Avoid such pursuits carefully. If there is even a trace of this and that, of this and that, of right and wrong, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. If there is even a trace of this and that, of right and wrong, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. Although all dualities come from the one, do not be attached even to this one. When the mind exists undisturbed 
in the way. Nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. No trace of this and that, of right and wrong. If I'm sitting with you in the living room and we recognize that we are sharing a journey together, one of the prevalent topics of conversation besides cosmic gossip, which fills a good part of our time, what do you think of and is sharing the experiences about the pitfalls, the confusions, the places where it hasn't yet come together. Well, you read a Buddhist text and you read a Hindu text and you go to a Sufi dance and you read the Kabbalah and you keep hearing more and more informational input and it hasn't yet all come together. I worship the one and I love the one and I dream of the one and I'm drunk on the love of the one. And many of my, quote, Buddhist friends think of me as a mushy love and lighter because I don't have a clean, incisive, Vajra-like approach, which sees that the concept of one is, in fact, just another illusion. Last year, there was a uh, conference that John Lilly and Alan Watts called for us to meet G. Spencer Brown. It was at Esalen. And G. Spencer Brown was an English eccentric who had written some very far out books. And in one of the books, the book started with a blank page. And then down the middle of the page was a line. And what he was doing was creating a logic to explain the creation of the universe. Simple task. It was the thing, he was doing the thing that Buddha calls absurd. And he said, you start with nothing and then there's a discrimination. And he put a line down the page. In the beginning is the first distinction, he said. And then you have this and that, yin and yang, dark and light. And from there you build the universe. It's very easy.
He says, but the problem is, see, and out of that distinction comes all the values and morals and ethics and sociology and culture and everything. The problem is, in order to have made the first distinction, you had to have a value to begin with. So in a footnote, he points this out, and he says, and since before the first distinction there is no value, in fact, the universe was never created. Therefore, this book were, is written to be an outline of how it would be were there a universe. And the reason a lot of us have confusion these days is because we're not totally comfortable with paradox. We're still trying to make it all logical. We're still trying to be reasonable about it all. We're still trying to explain why we don't eat meat or do eat meat. Instead of just saying, well, it's the way the puck skids. <laughs> the intellect is an exquisite, exquisite tool, device, instrument, but it is an absolutely lousy master. The worship of the rational mind which is the foundation of the temple which we are in at the moment, theoretically, since we're in a university. Is the predicament that comes with developing powers because there is no doubt in any of our minds that our intellect has incredible power. And to use a power tool without getting caught in ego identification with being the actor or identification with the tool itself, is exceeding difficult because the ego feeds on power. Because ego is the structure of separateness and separateness's security is based on its power in relation to the rest of the universe, to them or that. And it is this me, I versus that, her, him, them, that. And the interface between this and that is very scary when you are this and there is that. And all of the rational mind games have been to control that for the pleasure of this. It's what Florence Kluckhohn in her studies of cultures talks about 
cultures of man over nature. And the use of a power tool, in this case, the need to control the environment, is very deeply rooted in fear. Fear of being overwhelmed by the environment. Fear of the loss of separateness. And if you're ready for the confusion, for the paradox, that you are in an incarnation which is totally dedicated to the preservation of its own separateness, and you are awakening to the realization that the entire domain of separateness is but another illusion. And so you find yourself marching in a 180 degree opposite direction to everything you learned, everything your body is telling you, all of the deepest structures of ego. This is the battle that is described in the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavad Gita. And that battle poses to Arjuna exactly the issues of these paradoxes. Because Arjuna has Krishna, who is God as his charioteer in this case, drive him down between the two armies the night before the battle begins. And he looks over at the other side, at them, who are his cousins, the Kuravas. And he sees among their ranks his own teachers. He sees uncles. He sees beloved and respected elders of the tribe. He sees old friends. And he throws down his spear and he says to Krishna, the hell with it, I'm not going to fight. Because if I fight this battle, I'm going to lose all of the things I held dear. I can't fight against my teachers, my friends, my relatives. Family will be destroyed, honor, tradition, ritual will all be destroyed. All of the structures of the universe which gave my life meaning are going to be wiped out if I carry out this battle. That's what Arjuna says to God. And God says, well, I'll tell you, you're going to fight anyway. And the next 17 chapters are a series of various levels of argument, rationalization, justification, and profound wisdom and vision, which blows out Arjuna's resistance.
See, it's easy when you get into, quote, the spiritual path, unquote, whatever that may turn out to be, to bring along all of your old good and evil trips. Well, now I have a good rationale for putting down stealing, lying, lusting, all the things that my parents told me I should put down. Now I've got a good reason, and it's not their old religion, it's my new one. It's all the family, we just have to, if you're in the living room and the baby cries, you have to bring your loving consciousness to bear. See, it's easy to get into the good guys and bad guys trip on the spiritual path, but it gets a little scary a little freaky, a little weird, a little shaky, a little dubious, a little confusing when the good guys become the enemies as well as the bad guys. There is a tradition in Hinduism which is concerned with what's called the three gunas. The three gunas are sattvic, rajasic, and tamasic. They are the three strands of the rope that make up the manifestation of the universe. Tamasic is the rock-like, inert, heavy, turned inward in a depressed fashion way, rock-like. Rajasic is the fire, the action, the doing, the achieving, the accomplishing, the going outward, the going out into forms, the per, per, proliferating of forms. Satwig is the force of the light. It's the straight reflection of the inner light. It's the force that brings you towards the one, towards the light. And each of us is made up of some stranding, some combination of these three strands. So in each of us is a little bit of rajasic stuff, outdoing it, making it happen. Western America, the pioneer America is rajasic. There is a good part of India often that's very tamasic. And in all countries, there are some beings who are dominantly sattvic. And what are the stages of the path in relation to the gunas are that in the beginning, as you start to awaken to your predicament, you start to become more and more sattvic.
And so then your rajasic and tamasic qualities become stuff you work with in order to convert it to sattvic, to things, forces of light. And in the course of a number of incarnations, you get to the point where you are so sattvic, you are just the essence of beautiful light. You are still self-consciously so. At that point in the Indian tradition, you are part way home. But nirguna is the next stage. Beyond tretguna, beyond beyond the gunas. beyond the gunas, beyond sattvic too. And to leave behind sattvic gets pretty scary because it's been such a secure place to stand. You always knew just what was right. In India, often when you're in a railway station, you go to pick up your bag and somebody comes along and grabs your bag and you say, oh, sir, thank you. Why are you doing that? He says, it is my duty. It's my duty. Now, we have a different concept of duty, but there it means that is the sattvic act that I must perform at this point. That's what I do. It's, my, it's the, the role that is suitable to what I am becoming, self-consciously undertaken. And as the panya, wisdom, whatever you want to call the word for wisdom, gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and your perception gets quieter, so you're seeing more. You get to the point where you are becoming very good, not because you're a goody-goody gumshoes, not because you think you ought to be good, not because somebody tells you to be good, not because you're afraid all hell's going to break loose if you're not good, but just because that's the way it is. That's a whole new way. At that point, you're not doing something because it's your duty. You're doing it because you're doing it, because that's who you've become. And at that stage, which is a stage that I've been struggling with for a long time, because similar to Arjuna, it confronted me with the predicament that I was having inner feelings that were not acceptable to me as a sattvic person. Like I would sit up in front of an audience and I wouldn't care a damn bit about any of it. 
And I got so, since I was trying to be honest, that somebody would come up to me and they'd say, thank you, you helped me so much. And I would say, that's your problem. <laughs> yeah. And that didn't feel very compassionate from my old model of what compassion was. Because you were supposed to climb into, oh, that's all right, it's all God's blessing. In other words, the battle, the enemies that Arjun is facing aren't out there. They're not the cultural rituals and all of that stuff. They're our own inner feelings about how we think it ought to be. That's what the battle is with. Like in order to clear my consciousness at all, for a long period of time, I adopted a, a number of um, yogic postures concerning what I would eat, how I would sleep, what I would drink, what I would do, what I would say, what I wouldn't say, a set of rules. And then I started to get to the point where I would like come to California and I would visit a commune or meet people on the street and they were equally as radiant as any of the holy beings I was hanging around, but they were just on the way to the hardware store. Okay. They were just doing their thing. See? And it was, I had to, because I was tuned to vibration, I had to honor the fact that these beings were whatever the spiritual vibration was that seemed to be the criterion by which I was measuring whatever it was that was happening, these beings were certainly equally as evolved as anybody else I knew. And I'd say, well, what is your sadhana? And you know, some of them had never even heard the word. Now, that's a very shaky experience. These are just stages in development for me that I'm describing. They're stages that are places where great confusion comes. Sitting up here is Bhagwan Das, who's going to uh, be singing tomorrow morning here. And Bhagwan Das was the being who uh, was my guide in India. And when he uh, brought me to a temple in India, then I started to get very holy because I had a very good teacher who was a very, very pure teacher. And Bhagwan Das, who was way, way ahead of me, he was totally, totally a rascal. I would do all these things and he would, you know, I would be a very good yogi and he'd be dropping by every now and then. And it shocked me. And I thought, well, he's just a slob. I'll never become like that. (laughs) 
And then I found myself, like a few years later, with a group of Westerners in India who were now new in the game, and they were all busy doing the thing, and I'd drop by, you know, and I'd say, well, I'm going out for chai, for tea, see you around. Aren't you going to do this puja? Gee, no, I think I'll skip it today. And I could look in their eyes and I could see in their eyes the same thing that had been in my eyes three years before of the horror of my being unwilling to play the game. And at the point where you meet the guy or gal on the way to the hardware store, you begin to examine the secure little niche you've been hanging out in that's been making you feel so high. Like, I'll tell you quite straight out, when I go off by myself, I get stoned out of my head. I mean, the, the walls disappear, I turn, planes of consciousness change, I get drunk, I get hysterically laughing. I was down in the desert in Arizona for five or six weeks this winter. And I was way out in a primitive campground in the Volkswagen bus. And I would find myself dancing naked through the cactuses, you know, <laughs> laughing and screaming and drunk and thinking far out, you know. I'd come down to think far out and then I'd go, ah. <laughs> Okay. That is, I now think I know how to get at least astrally high, okay, reasonably easily. But clinging to my methods is no more or less than a junkie clinging to his connection. Clinging to his fixings. No more or less than my father clinging to his bank book. President Nixon clinging to the presidency. <laughs> it's the plight of a desperate being who is afraid that if he doesn't hold tight to his method, he's going to lose the space. He's going to lose the expansiveness. He's going to lose the flow. He's going to lose the high. He's going to lose the connection. Lose your connection. And at that stage, you very slowly start to reassess and start to come closer to the fire of the marketplace by allowing things to happen inside and outside that previously you never would have allowed to happen.
For a long time, I was so busy feeling I ought to love everybody that I never allowed the anger to happen. I was into that hysterical, fixed smile. Aren't we happy? Isn't God beautiful? Don't we love each other? Isn't it all nice? Okay. Which it is, but not at that level. Okay. That's the horror show. Okay. That's the one that firmly believes it isn't. Okay. If you really think it's hell, when you say, isn't it heaven? Okay. It's heaven, isn't it? <laughs> For a long series of lectures a year ago, I was in a stage where everything seemed empty and dead to me. Just empty and meaningless and dead. And everybody looked like puppets, including me. The whole thing looked like a mechanical nonsense. And it was meaningless. And there was an emotional state connected with it. It was just another stage. And I was caught because every time I'd give a lecture, everybody, there's Ram Dass, let's sing and dance. <laughs> I get up, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, inside, I think, oh shit, about three more hours of this and I go home. And then you think, oh boy, am I damned. Here is the most sacred thing, singing the names of God, and what am I doing? I'm profaning it with my own, oh, this is, this is hell, this is hell. I am in hell, I've blown it, I'm in hell. And every now and then, I would risk being a little straight with the audience or whoever I was with, and everybody would get freaked. Because I was a projection of everybody about how I was supposed to be and who I was supposed to be a symbol of. And I kept, I was that, that's that place where I felt like I was starving to death inside Ramdas. It was like, nobody cares that I'm miserable, lonely, unhappy, neurotic. See, everybody wants me to be Ramdas. Hello, I'm Ramdas. I'm holy. I'm happy. <laughs> now, there was a long period where the struggle was very intense. I'd go home to my room and close the door, and I'd be Ramdas. I'd be me. I'd be me with a vengeance. I'd sit in my bed depressed. <laughs> I'd take long baths. <laughs> and I'd gorge myself on pizza and beer. And I would... You know. <laughs> then I'd put on my holy clothes. 
And I'd go to somebody's home, and they would serve me. They'd wash my feet, and I'd sit down, and they would serve me essence of um, ambrosial um, bean sprouts. Um, and um, they'd ask if I even took food, or did I live on light, you know? <laughs> And I keep thinking, there must be something wrong with this. There's some hypocrisy sneaking around in here, you know? It's like, but I'm really caught inside, like in Bob Dylan's song, I'm caught inside the mobile end of the Memphis blues again, you know? I'm like, never gonna get out of this thing. The hypocrisy is just gonna get worse and worse. The discrepancy between who I am and who somebody thinks I am is drowning me. Now, at that stage of the game, there are a series of choices where you're still thinking you're somebody making choices. There is the choice to continue the hypocrisy or to be honest and let the chips fall where they will. If you want to eat it, eat it publicly. If you want to make it, make it publicly. You know. So I ripped off my holy clothes and I started to live it up. I'll show everybody. Hey, let's get rid of all this holy nonsense, I said to myself. And I was enjoying the defiance of it all. In London, I remember sitting in a uh, park with uh, Caroline Rukmini, and uh, she was wearing an English, vera, a mini skirt and white boots. And we were sitting out in the sun, and I had my hand on her thigh, and she had just done her hair blonde. And the whole scene was totally absurd. And <laughs> we were sitting there, and a boy walked across the thing, and he came up to me, and he had been at a lecture the night before, and he said, Baba Ramdas? And I said, yes. And I watched, I watched his eyes go down my body and down my arm to her thigh, to her white boots, to her miniskirt, you know. And his eyes became like a one-armed bandit, you know, just going for oranges, apples, lemons, you know. He was freaking because another symbol had bit the dust, another more despair more fraudulence in the world. It's not how it's see, there's nothing pure left. And that was the purest thing he'd seen all day, actually. There is one other alternative in those, that period. See, I said the two alternatives were to continue the hypocrisy or just go act out who you think you are. The other alternative, of course, is to give up who you think you are. Now, that's a tricky one. 
because you're really busy thinking that's who you are. And you're very attached to these thoughts because you've nurtured them and cultivated them. That's who I am. I'm a good person. I'm a hard worker. I, whatever your labels are, those are very, they're very warm old companions. They're, you know, they're people you really used to hanging out with a lot. And at one point, my guru said to me, tell the truth, because I was angry at everybody. He said, love everybody. And I said, yes, but you told me to tell the truth. And the truth is, I don't love everybody. Like, I'm telling you how it is. I'm telling you who I am. I am somebody that when I tell the truth, the truth is I don't love everybody because my emotions are real. And I didn't impress him a bit. <laughs> he looked at me and he came up to me close and he said, love everyone and tell the truth. And I went, but like, but what are you doing? You're denying reality, Maharaji. And suddenly I saw my whole reality of who I thought I was as made of tissue paper. Those are the places where the battle is. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.